Hi, I'm Willie Miller. Hi, I'm Seth Coe. I'm Taylor Beckett. Hello, I'm Jonathan Agnew. Hi, it's Grant Hackett here. Hi, I'm Sharon Green from the Wallaroo. I'm Azuma Nelson. I'm Gashirin and you're listening to Not the Foolish. Yes. Yes, you are indeed listening to another podcast of Not The Footy Show. We hope you enjoy all that we're going to be discussing on this podcast. We've got a very special guest, as we do on every podcast. And this week, we're catching up with Jop van Bunger, who is the Talent Development Coordinator at the Wacker. And we're catching up with him because he is the assistant coach of the Australian deaf cricket team that will be playing at the World Cup in India later this year has also been involved in the development of the indigenous players as well here in Western Australia and we thought those were programs that don't get a lot of publicity and it'd be interesting to hear how they're going anyway I'm Ashley Morrison and I'm John Lee and uh, John good to be back yes you've been away again travelling uh, well, it was my dad's 90th birthday, so oh. it's one of those events you can't miss. No, and back to the old school too, I saw. Oh, did, yeah, that was, uh, yeah, it was funny, went back to the old school, hadn't been back there for a very, very long time, and it had changed dramatically because the grounds have actually been bought by the National Trust, so oh, they've wow. actually restored them to how Capability Brown originally wanted them to be, and uh, I must admit, they've there were a lot of temples that were sold by the Dukes of Buckingham and the National Trust. If they've been on other properties, they've actually brought them back and put them in the ground. So it was uh, a few buildings that weren't there when I was there that, wow. you know, old historic buildings. And, yeah, it was it was actually really good to go That's back. That's a bit of cost too, I would imagine, removing stone buildings, etc. Yeah, I don't think it would have come cheap. And then they've they've sort of replicated some of the others that they can't find or are on other private estates now. So, yeah, it was good. But anyway... Are you starting us today? I can if you want. Oh, go, go for it. Well, it's actually linked to being back in the UK when I was over there because the um, Champions League final was on when I was over there. And I thought it was really interesting to see, especially in my hometown of Swindon, like we're a long, long way from Liverpool. But that particular evening, there was you could go out in the streets, they were deserted. Like People were really? watching the Champions League Cup final. They were in bars. They were at home. It was Everybody was talking about it. And you think we're in the southwest of England, you know, Liverpool's up on the northwest, and yet everybody was watching it, everybody was supporting Liverpool. Now, I've got a friend who owns a snooker club, and he had again the game on a big screen there, Jester's Snooker, I'll give him a plug there <laughs> in Swindon. Um, and I asked him, I said, you know, was everybody at the club there supporting Liverpool? And he goes, yeah, he goes, the only guys that weren't were the guys who had money on Real Madrid, you know, <laughs> that they'd actually gone to the bookies and put money on that. And I thought it was really interesting that there was that support. Now, I'd again asked a few other people when we were travelling around, and they said, look, as far as they knew, everyone was supporting except, you know, some Man United supporters. But I was just wondering whether we get that in Australia, whether there is any time where a club side would be competing, you know, against other international sides probably you know you've got the Asian Champions League where but does the whole country get behind them and I I'm not sure we've kind of got that yet in Australia and it may be the fact that we are such a vast country spread across you know a massive desert on either sides of it and that we don't have those connections like I'm sure there were a lot of people were supporting Western Sydney Wanderers when they won the Asian Champions League but was it quite as um, universal and was it all Australians getting behind watching the game and, and backing them and saying this is a team representing Australia 
I'm not sure it was that. Maybe we're too young to be at that stage. But I just thought it was a really interesting situation. I I think you're touching on it there with a, a youth of our nation. And because of our nat- uh, natural geographic barriers, we're, we're not used to playing international club competitions of any sort in any sport. I mean, the, apart from the Asian Champions League, what else have you got? You've got the defunct uh, ICC Champions Trophy for the... That, that's gone by the wayside now. Not the Champions the, Trophy. The Big the, Bash one? Or? Uh, yeah, the 2021 where they had... Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the winners of the 2020 league would all go to India and that, that died after... Well, essentially because of corruption allegations. Yeah, with, I mean, you've got Super Rugby, that. but is that quite the same? No, it's not. Yeah. And and maybe the World Club Challenge where the, the winner of the NRL plays against the winner of the, the Super League in, in England... But apart from that, I can't think of where we go head-to-head as a club in any sort of competition. No, I mean, again... No, and, and don't forget that Europe's got a, a long history of that sort of thing because of the, the lack of geographic yeah. stuff. So that France, a team from France can travel 30 kilometres and be playing and, at, against a club from another country. Well, it's 40 minutes to get through Luxembourg. So well, there, you know. there you go. I mean, so there's certain barriers that we've always faced to that sort of thing going on. Do you think, though, that it would enhance us if we had more of those competitions? I know that the problem you've got is in some sports, some of our nearest neighbours aren't necessarily of a similar standard to us, or in some sports, say, for example, badminton, they would be far more superior Mm. to us. So it's a a kind of a difficult one. Well, let's just take the Asian Champions League as an example, because it's the only example we've got. Um, You know, how many Melbourne Victory fans are going to be going along or cheering on Melbourne City. Yep. If, if they were to play in a, in a game like that. Um, well, as you mentioned in England, everybody got behind Liverpool. Now, was that just because it was a final? Oh, yeah, I think it was because it was the final and it yeah. was an English club that was there and there is that sort of national pride. But it, it kind of leads me on, John, to that other thing and it, it's something that I've found talking to people involved in sport in Europe that they're seeing now a real shift that fans are more supportive of club sides than they are of their national teams. Now, the World Cup at the moment that's on in Russia, that people may say that defies that. But if you look at the number of England fans that have gone to Russia, which is really, really low, I think it's the lowest ever attendance by England fans at a World Cup. Now, some of that they're saying is because, A, it was extremely expensive. I know people that were looking to go and they said it was ridiculously expensive. Now, whether that was weighted because Russia didn't want them there, because of maybe history of violence and hooliganism. Oh, I, I have no doubt that's the yeah, reason. And that may well be one of the reasons. Um, the other reason was obviously security issues because of things that have been going on or allegedly been going on in the UK with um, people getting poisoned. Um, you know, well, you also have the situation at the last European Championship where the Russian and, and English fans went at each other in major brawls down the street. Now, maybe the English fans have gone, you know what, we're going to Russia. If that happens in Russia, we're getting locked up and those blokes are going home for a nice beer. And that's probably what's more on the mind of a lot of those people. If if something happens, it's going to be us that carries the can. The Russians aren't going to stuff around. But I think you also there, we, we must be very, very careful because most of the England fans that go and follow England are not hooligans. No, they're not. You know, a lot of them are very football-loving just want to go support their team but the, the, the point getting back to it that I find interesting is 
that we're seeing now this shift that people are going away from their international team and they're wanting to support their local teams or or their club sides a lot more and they feel that they're getting more return or more emotional connection than with the national sides. I think we've got to look at, too, the, the makeup of the national sides. I mean, unless you're England, maybe Spain or Germany, most of the players in your national team are not playing in your local club competition. There's, there, you look through those teams, most of the players on those national teams play in other countries. The Russian team, most of those blokes haven't been in Russia for a long, long time. You know, they've, they've been living out of the country. So it's very hard for a fan to have that engagement with those players if they're not playing in the club. When they're playing at a, 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 a your, your club in your nation, you actually, you can go and watch them every week. You can see them at training. You can bump into them at a store, buying coffee. But they, they, so they somehow become real to you. They're, they're, they're right there in front of you and... When, when it's some guy who's just turning up every six months to play a national game because he's off in Costa Rica or wherever he happens to be, you don't have that engagement with the team that you do with your local club team. And I'm, I'm on the record as saying that in relation to the sport that I play, hockey, that you'll never get profe- proper professional leagues at the international level with government supporting them. Truly professional sport happens at a club level. And and maybe this is more of a uh, reinforcing that idea that it is clubs that pref- uh, they're the financial lifebloods of the sports. That's where payers get pl- paid essentially. You don't make the big money out of playing for Australia or America or Brazil or whoever it is. You make your big money in clubland. Yeah, although the the Socceroos are one of the highest paid international teams. Now oh, I, that's another I, joke that yeah. we'll get to. I mean, I, I actually have an issue with that. To me. I don't think these days, when you look at the salaries that a lot of the international sports players are getting from their clubs, to me, we should be going back that it's an honour to play for your country. And you're just getting like a minimum wage. And to be yeah, fair, be. some of those countries they are. I mean, like, I think the England players get £5,000 a game. So it's not like they're getting huge amounts of money representing their countries. But, you know, even so, that's still quite a lot of money. What does, say, an Australian or an English test cricketer get per test? I I know now these days guys got on central contracts and that sort of stuff, but they still get paid per game. So what do they be They'd be on about 10 grand a game? They'd be on a fair bit, yeah. I can't remember exactly what it is. And quite frankly, you're right. You get more out of being selected for a national team than the money that you're possibly going to make from it. The money is quite irrelevant. What it does to the co- what it does to your wage at clubland? Oh, he's an international player. Let's add another zero to that contract, then, shall we? Yeah, and then the that's sponsorship dollars start sponsorship, rolling in as well. And that's where it becomes financially lucrative for players. It shouldn't be financially lucrative to be named. Yeah, I mean, and I think that you, you touched on there, obviously, hockey, where it's in a very different situation where predominantly at clubland it's an amateur sport yeah yeah so therefore players should be rewarded then for if they make it to international level so you've got the the difference that probably the tier one sports that we're talking about you know your your football your rugby union your rugby league where they're getting good salaries maybe at international level minimum wage whereas 
where you're play, get, not getting paid to play at club level and you're really having to train in your own time to become a top player, you should get the rewards in a tier two sport, I believe. Just quietly, uh, as a slight sidetrack there, did you know that it was uh, National Volunteers Week in hockey a couple of weeks ago? Yeah, I did see yeah. that. I, I just laughed my ass off. I've got to be honest. I laughed all the way through that press release. Guess what? Everybody in our sport is a bloody volunteer, mate. The players are volunteers, the umpires volunteer, all of the coaches are volunteer. Nobody outside of the national program makes a living out of hockey. Nobody. No coach, no, maybe some administrators do. But even, even at the national level, the players don't make a living. They make some money, but it's not a living. The coaches, they might be making a living out of it. We're all volunteers. So it was every hockey player week, not just volunteers, but that's a sidetrack anyway. Maybe, I hope they hear that. <laughs> well, we'll no doubt hear if they do hear. <laughs> Hi, I'm Willie Miller, and you're listening to Not The Footy Show. Yes, you're indeed listening to Not The Footy Show, and it is now time for us to turn our attention to our guest on this show. And as I mentioned, I caught up with Jop van Bunger, who is the Talent Development Coordinator at the Wacker. Now, we had a coffee outside, so you may hear a little bit of transport going past occasionally, but uh, we're really going to catch up with Jop to hear about some of the development programs in place at the Wacker and how they're really getting involved with athletes with disabilities and trying to promote cricket to them. Jop van Bunger, welcome to Not The Footy Show. Yeah, welcome. Thanks for having me, Ash. Now, good, good to catch up, and uh, obviously working at the Wacker, I would have thought there's a little bit of disappointment, but also an immense amount of pride that Justin Langer has now been appointed the national coach. Definitely, yeah, Justin has been uh, great for us here at the Wacker the last uh, five or six years, and it's a great opportunity to coach your country, so I'm sure he'll do well, and um, yeah, wish him all the best. And obviously you're involved in the development of the game here in Western Australia and it's been great to see that Cricket Australia and obviously the WA Cricket Association have got behind trying to find Aboriginal talent and we've just seen the Aboriginal team go to replicate the tour of 150 years ago and we've also had the Indigenous uh, um, Championships as well held in Australia for the last two years. You've been involved in those. Do you see it as well as something that's growing? Definitely, and I think um, the, the focus from Cricket Australia and the WACA to uh, invest in the non-mainstream um, cricket is fantastic. Um, the Commonwealth Bank is a big supporter of that as well, and um, yeah, it's just great to be involved in those kind of programs, and um, there's so much more to just the normal cricket or the traditional cricket, so to be involved in that type of um, yeah, cricket is fantastic and it's really rewarding and um, I didn't even know that there was that much um, non-traditional cricket out there but um, yeah, it's been a big learning curve and it's been fantastic to be involved. How are you welcomed when you go into the outback and, and you sort of bring out the cricket kid amongst the Aboriginal children? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's interesting, especially being a, a Dutchman, uh, far away from home but um, ultimately it's, it's about connecting with the kids and um, it, it's not really about me or, or about anybody who really comes to those uh, to the outback, I suppose. But it's it's more uh, providing those kids with an opportunity and, and having a good time with them and um, connecting with them and then making sure that cricket um, that that they play cricket, I suppose. And yeah, it's it's great to connect with them. 
do you see a lot of talent amongst them? Yes, we do. Um, I think, um, especially with the Aboriginal um, players, they're very talented, um, very athletic, which is really good to see. But, um, yeah, to keep them in the game is the next big question, and, and I think that's the hard part, because they obviously have a range of... Um, they've got their own journeys that they're, that they're on, but to connect at them at times and to keep them in the game um, is probably a focus that we want to do next. I mean, one of the things that is a positive is Cricket Australia have said that they've grown since 2012-14, the Aboriginal involvement in the game by 40%. Now, it could have been very low before then, but it's still a good growth, and we're also beginning to see a lot of Aboriginal cricketers playing in the Big Bash and playing for their state team. So that's got to help because role models are very important for the Aboriginal community. Yeah, you're spot on, Nash. That's, um, that's well said. <laughs> don't know if you heard that but um, yeah so I'm involved at the top end and, and we see that a lot of um, Aboriginal players um, they identify themselves first and foremost a bit more and with these kind of role models it, it should be um, much easier for um, uh, the Aboriginal players to keep playing cricket throughout their uh, youth years and um, a lot of our indigenous indigenous state players that play Premier Cricket which is the highest level in Perth so the more players we can have in our Premier Club system the better it will be for the, the level below and, and um, for those younger kids to, to have their own role models Does Jason Gillespie obviously is one of the high profile male players, does he get very involved in behind this programme? I mean I know he spends a lot of time overseas now Yes, I'm not sure actually um, I don't know Jason at all to be honest but um, from a WA point of view, we obviously have uh, Darcy Short, um, who originally is from the NT, but I think uh, WA has claimed him. Um, and he gets involved, and he's been involved with, with the state squad. and um, So that, that's, that's really positive that those guys give back. And obviously on the tour to England, you have Dan Christian, who um, is a great role model and, and has been on the forefront of this, of this process. Oh, it's great to see. Now, another area that you're involved in is, is obviously you're part of the Australian deaf cricket team. Now, I was amazed. I know there was blind cricket, but I'd never heard of a deaf team, although years ago I did play with a guy who actually played professional cricket in England called Bob Launchbury, who was, uh, he was I think, 80% deaf, so he did pretty well, but he would, had an amazing touch. He did everything by feel when he was playing in the game. But, I mean, how is that coming along? Yeah, it's been a uh, very interesting journey and um, when I saw the advert, so I'm the assistant coach at the moment, and when I saw the, the ad to, um, for the assistant coach, I, I wasn't really sure what it all contained and what, what, it, what it meant, but I thought this is a great opportunity to be involved and to give back and a um, little bit to my surprise, I, I was successful in applying for the role and it's, it's, it's such an exciting space because um, it, the people involved are so passionate and it, it's real how do you say it It's um, um, they're just about cricket and cricket is all that matters and it, it's so real and it's so um, rewarding to, to be able to work with those non-traditional um, players um, the interesting part for me was that um, some of the guys who were actually profoundly deaf and some were hard of hearing so communication was, was, was a massive, massive challenge. But um, 
I think I've adapted well enough to, to connect with the players. Uh, I don't know if my sign language is up to scratch yet, but uh, the eye contact has certainly been there. So <laughs> I was going to ask, have you had to learn to sign? Yes, I know a few signs now, and I'm um, planning on taking a few more Auslan, um classes because I think it's important to, to learn the language of the people you work with or, or the people you're involved with. So as English is... Although it's the main language, um, the people who are completely deaf, they obviously don't hear English. Um, so yeah, Auslang is, is probably the common language there. So yeah, I'm keen to get involved in that and learn a bit more about um, sign language. And you touched on there as well. I would think eye content is so important so they can read your lips as well. So that when you're talking to someone, you're actually looking at them. Something that all of us that are actually have full hearing often sometimes forget to do. Yes, and it, it's... It, it, I'm, when I speak and when I um, speak in front of a group, I tend to move around and make hand gestures. And um, on the first day that I was at the camp, uh, the national cricket camp in uh, Brisbane, um, there were two translators. And then after two minutes in, he pulled me back and said, Job, you got to stand still and don't move your head because the players can't read your lips. And it was just a massive eye-opener to, to, to learn about that. But since then, I... I feel I'm looking people more in the eye when I communicate and, and really have that direct line of communication. And it's, um, it's fascinating to learn about that because all the things that um, hearing people take for granted, for example, in a change room, when you are tying your shoelaces, you can still hear what the coach is saying or what other people are saying. But in a deaf setting, that's completely lost because as soon as you lost eye contact, um, they basically can't hear you, literally. So um, that's been a really interesting uh, journey and, and had to learn quickly to, to adapt to that. And things just take longer to communicate. But again, it's the same with the Aboriginal kids in, in, in the outback. As soon as you connect and people see that you care, it, it goes a, little, a bit easier. One question I'm sure our listeners are going to ask is, how do they call for a quick single if you're deaf? I mean, it, it just seems like, is it again, it's sign language or do they just instinctively seem to know? So what happens in um, during a cricket match, um, the deaf and the guys that are hard of hearing, so who have cochlear implants, they all have to take it off. So th there's a level playing field in the game. And it's there's basically two signs. It's run or not run. And there's no wait. So they have to look at each other, which... So even in normal cricket, it doesn't always happen. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so communication there is really key, and it, it's key that they look at each other and see what signs they use uh, before they run. So it's, it's a bit harder from that perspective, yeah. Now, I know obviously these people have had hearing disabilities for a while, but, I mean, if you have an ear infection, it can throw your balance off. I mean, what is their coordination balance when they've taken those implants out? What, does it affect them? It's a really good question, actually. Um, I don't think it has. I don't know if they're just used to taking it on and off. Um, it's actually a really good question. I haven't thought about that yet, but uh, I might have to come back to you on that one. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> now, I mean, obviously we've touched on the, de uh, the deaf side of things, but it's great that Cricket Australia is now doing these National Cricket Inclusion Championships where they had cricket for the blind, they had cricket for the intellectually disabled, as well as the deaf. And again, I think they were all held around the same time. Are we seeing growth in the numbers there and the fact that suddenly cricket is available to these people that maybe previously it wasn't? Yes, I think it's becoming more accessible. Um, I think from stats, but 
probably have to uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think one in five, almost one in five Australians has some sort of a disability, and I think there's not even two percent of Australians are playing. So with these kind of championships and the, the sport for all campaign, it just becomes more accessible for the non-traditional, for the non-mainstream uh, cricketers. I mean, where's the future for that? I mean, can we, are we likely to see cricket in the Paralympics in that it's it's obviously a sport that could be played at something like that, even in small form? Yeah, I, I would highly encourage that. And as um, Australia is making really good good steps forward to make it more accessible within Australia, I'm sure from a global point of view that that would be the next step. And um, there's World Cup, so there's a Deaf World Cup in uh, hopefully in November in India. So... As the years go by, I'm sure that, that the, the focus for the non-mainstream cricketers will, will increase, which hopefully, hopefully leads to um, Paralympics or, or even the normal Olympics. And Cricket Australia set some really bold targets. From a, so I'm involved in the Aboriginal and the Deaf side, where, where you want to see um, Aboriginal and Deaf players in the BBL in, in five years' time. And Aboriginal, the Aboriginal side is a little bit ahead. They obviously have a few players playing already. Um, but the deaf side is, is um, something that's next on the agenda, I suppose. How important would it be for Australia to perform well at that Deaf World Cup so that, again, that section of the game gets the publicity, then with that comes sponsorship? Correct, and that's spot on. And I think uh, from the history that I've learned in the last few months is that Australia has been pretty successful in this space already. Um, so um, doing really well at that World, World Cup is, is going to be key and uh, it will help local cricketers here and local uh, programs develop quicker, I suppose. And just finally, I mean, we, we know obviously the traditional test cricket playing countries. At the deaf side, are they still the same countries or are we seeing some of the sort of tier two nations being very strong in these areas? So it's an eight-team World Cup and it's the main countries, the main test playing countries that are participating. Um, I don't know if that, that's what the history is behind that, but I'm sure that um, once, again, once it becomes more known and once it gets promoted better, um, other countries will clock on and, and, and just uh, be a part of this going forward. Well, Jop, fantastic to catch up and keep up the good work, and we'd love to have a chat with you nearer the World Cup and see how things are going. Done. Thanks, Ash. Hi, I'm Derek Underwood, and this is the Not The Putty Show. Yes, it is indeed not the footy show. And that was Jop van Bunger from the Wacker. He is the talent development coordinator. And obviously the deaf team heading off to India for the World Cup. And I thought some really interesting things there, how he was saying he's had to change his communication skills as a coach um, dealing with the deaf because obviously you have to have that eye contact. And how he was saying, you know, when a player's tying his shoelaces in the changing rooms, you kind of have to stop because obviously they can't hear what you're trying to tell them. But I, I think it's great that we've seen for a long time, I know the primary club in England has been supporting blind cricketers over there. Derek Underwood, in fact, yeah, has yeah. been the patron of that for a very, very long time. And uh, that's been good to see, and the ball has a little rattle in it. But it's great to see that other disability people with disabilities are now able to get involved with cricket, that the deaf people are playing. And as I mentioned um, during that, we've also got people with intellectual disabilities who are also playing the game now 
and I think anybody that gets the opportunity to play any sport if they have disabilities the more people that are playing the better it is have you ever had a crack at um, the blind cricket because uh, I've done a thing where they, they put glasses on you and got you out there and mate it's hard those blokes are, and women girls they're pretty talented and that's a hard thing to do to not be able to see something and just try and hit it off the sound now I know if you're blind you probably develop those senses and stuff it would still be immensely difficult now the closest I ever came to that was after a particular game they had one of those big you know soaker baths in the the pavilion and we started running that at tea time and uh, had a few drinks in there and the sun had gone down and (laughs) someone decided that we would go out and play naked cricket in the dark and uh, trust me somehow the batsman actually hit the ball and the rest of us were jumping and covering our equipment to make sure it didn't hit us in the field. But that's the closest I've come to blowing cricket. Now, that is a sport I would like to see broadcast, Ashley. <laughs> Naked, nude, night cricket. Hey, that could catch on. It could. Yeah, you could have like a searchlight just panning the ground. <laughs> Shall we keep talking broadcasting? If you wish. Well... We've we've had news during the week that Hockey Australia signed a new broadcast deal with Fox Sport. Now, I'm led to believe Hockey Australia didn't sign anything with anybody and it was a deal brokered by the FIH and they've just been left holding the can to this particular deal. I'm sure they would have been involved at some level, but I think predominantly it was an FIH deal, yeah. Which, um, at first glance, is terrifically disappointing because uh, Fox has done a terrible job of broadcasting hockey recently uh, and we only have to go back to the, to the last Oceania Cup where we were, we were told Fox would be broadcasting the games yeah 10 o'clock at night two hours after the event had finished and why they couldn't show it live oh well they were showing rugby league games from last season round games not even close ones ones where one team won by 30 points to 10 and stuff like that now that doesn't hark well for the upcoming broadcast deal with Fox Sports and I'm terribly concerned that not only when they made this announcement were we not told how much money was paid we weren't we weren't told what games that included we have no idea what this what this deal involves how many games what games we will be able to see what games we won't be able to see under the last broadcast rights deal we didn't get to see virtually any international hockey because Fox held the rights to it and if they decided they weren't going to show a game, we couldn't see it. We got geo-blocked from everyone else that was able to see the game. Now, if they've signed the same dud deal this time around that's going to allow Fox to exclude us from watching games we want us want to watch, then the sport's in a real, real has a real problem. And don't forget, Fox is asking us to fork out six or eight hundred dollars a year for one of these contracts to to potentially maybe might do could be watch the international games of hockey we want to watch at the same time we've just seen a situation here in Australia where people have gone absolutely ballistic over having spent $15 now to watch the the world cup of soccer and and that it hasn't come through as they they liked and they've you'd think someone had killed bambi Honestly, 15 bucks, mate, and you, to watch the entire World Cup, and you didn't think that was a little bit cheap. Um, so it'll be interesting to see how this Fox deal turns out. But it also it brings other questions about who's, who's making these deals and, and under 
for whose benefit and favour are these deals being made? I'm, I'm not sure that these benefits are being these deals are being made for the benefit of hockey lovers and viewers in this country. In fact, I'm sure they're not. It's being made for consideration, other people's considerations in other countries. I think the considerations, John, as you've said, sport is business, and it's mm-hmm. the top end that wants the money from the TV stations, and the viewer is secondary. It's all down to actually getting the sport on TV and the, for the biggest price they can get. Now, I agree with you. I read that press release, and I thought it was very lacking in information. No. When, you know, when when you read, to be fair, you know, when the FFA did a deal with Fox, they told you that every A-League game that Fox would be showing, all of the Socceroos games, you were told what you were going to get. And how much they had paid. Yeah, exactly. And they, Cricket, and to be, to be fair, football also said where a lot of that money was going to go, that X percentage was going to go to all of the A-League clubs. Now, so again, I, I found that that was a little bit lacking. And it is frustrating, of course, that you don't know. I would, you would hope that they've signed up for the Pro League if that goes ahead and that we're going to get not just Australia's games, but all of the games within that tournament. Um, you know, it's it, to me it was a little bit loose, and as you said, if Fox is not going to show it, then they need to have an app or whatever that you can watch through that app, you know, rather than or you can subscribe to get the app and you can watch those sports, you know, exactly. if the game is on. But there was no information even about that. Now th- you said about costing six hundred for a year. From my understanding the Fox subscriptions have been going down a fair bit since they lost the English Premier League and I think you can actually negotiate if you get on the phone. We, we, we don't even know which channel it's going on. Is it going to go on the channel that's and live on a basic package channel? Or are we going to have to spend more money to get the extra sports channels to get the hockey? Yeah. We don't know. None of this is all all we have is grand blue sky statements about how wonderful this is going forward with the vision of the game. We get no detail whatsoever. So whose job do you think that was? Was it Hockey Australia's? If if they didn't broker the deal, should the FIH have done that? But then the FIH, if they brokered the deal, probably wouldn't know the issues that we in Australia are suffering with Fox and the deals that have been you in place what? in the it past. It shouldn't matter. It shouldn't matter whether it's the FIH or Hockey Australia. They they keep talking about stakeholders. Well, guess who the biggest stakeholders in the game are? Us. The public. We're the biggest stakeholders of all. Oh, commercial incompetence, we can't tell you. What sort of bollocks is that? Seriously. It's us that support your the sport. It's us that should be told what the details are. We don't know how much money you've made, which games we're going to get. And where the money's going. Where the money's going... Am I going to be able to see the games I want to see, or am I going to be geo-blocked again, and you're not going to show them? It's one thing to geo-block them. It's another thing not to show the games. If you're going to geo-block, you have a responsibility and a right to show, and we have the right, you have the responsibility to show the games live. If you're not going to, don't bloody well geo-block them. Well, the thing I always feel personally is I think everybody, and this is not just in Australia, it's in any country in the world, I think if if you are an Australian, you should be entitled to watch your national team in an international sport or tournament for free. Uh, I, that's something I feel strong. If you're going to encourage the next generation to play sport, if you're going to try and stop people not being lazy and sitting on their you know sofas playing Xbox and getting out there and actually hitting a ball, chasing a ball, kicking a ball, catching a ball... You need them to see and create heroes, and you do that by seeing international games. 
and I just think I've always felt that the national team should always be available free to air I must admit I don't get the whole I'm going to watch a game of sport on my phone because if you how can you tell what's going on well as we get older you need glasses and you need a magnifying glass to watch it honestly what a waste of money $15 is to watch it on a screen the size of your hand if, if you're whinging and complaining about that, mate, you've obviously got some... Yeah. But if you've got a smart TV, John, of course, you can... Oh, you can plug it, it in, through yeah. that. But, you know, you, you touched on there the, the problems with Optus and the World Cup, and the thing I find really interesting about all of this is, what is Optus predominantly? The phone company. Exactly. Now, the thing that worries me here, and what we're seeing is... And if you remember Ansett, the oh, airline, yes. and Sir Peter Abel's... And, I mean, he said, I think from memory, he set up the airline initially because he needed to get to see his girlfriend. And it was the, one of the reasons that it was too expensive, so he set up his own airline. But if you look how Ansett diversified, and it, when it went broke, this was the reason it went broke, is it moved away from what its core business was. Yeah. And it got into so many other facets of it. Now, I look at Optus and I'm thinking, you know what? You're a phone company. You're not a television broadcaster. You're not a television host broadcaster in terms of having, and that has proved that you can't do that very well in that you don't have the backup technically, technical software to be able to accommodate the number of viewers that you've attracted. You've taken their money, but you haven't actually put enough infrastructure behind it. Now, I don't understand all that. I only have a very basic knowledge of it. And this is what worries me with this whole new technology boom is we're seeing people going, ooh, I might be able to get into that or I might be able to get into this. And I'm just thinking that we're, we're heading, I think, for a very dangerous area because people that are not television people are getting involved in television and that we're handing over money, we're handing over responsibility, we're handing over rights to these people. And we're losing out. As you said, the stakeholders, the viewers, are the ones that are losing out. And I just don't know where it's going to all end. And I wish to see things a little bit of normality resume. I'm not saying that we should be tied to all these TV stations. I think there is some pluses having new kids on the block. But at the same time, you need to make sure you've got the right people running it. And let's face it, a lot of these companies that get into this stuff, like, like Optus, they're not producing it. They don't have a team of people on the ground in Russia creating the content that they're no, showing. Exactly. They're just, they're just taking the live feed. feed. Yeah, 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 I know that. So but they need to have the, the software or the oh, backup no, no. technology to be able to host that. That's exactly what I'm getting at, is that they're not even doing the hard part. They're doing the easy part, and they can't get it right. And and we've, we see it on a live streaming of sport a lot, that people underestimate how many are going to watch, and as soon as you do that... You only need one person over your limit, and the whole thing buffers out. It's not. It's it's not as if it's oh we've got fifty thousand more viewers than we thought. It could be ten more viewers than you thought, and you're going to cop all of those problems. Well, John, I think that's probably enough on the sort of TV side of things. We don't yeah. want to absolutely hammer them because at least SBS are showing some games. But I just wanted to hark back to something. If you remember, I think it was two podcasts ago, maybe three. We were talking about the IAAF and the introduction of their rules regarding transgender athletes. 
Now, you predicted it, and it has happened in the last, well, in fact, it's happened in the last 24 hours from when we're recording this, that Kasta Semenya, the South African double Olympic and triple world 800 metres champion, uh, is actually challenging their, I suppose, arbitration or the rules that they're going to bring in, which are going to force her to have medication to lower her higher than normal levels of naturally, let's remember this, naturally produced testosterone. Um, and it, she's saying that it, they're saying it gives her an unfair advantage and she's now challenging that. Her law firm, Norton Rose Fulbright, have said in a statement that the legal challenge would be filed uh, at the Court of Arbitration for Sport in Lausanne. And that is an absolutely stunningly stupid thing for the International Athletics Federation to have done and to use that as its justification. You, you're going to have to take some drugs drugs to lower your naturally occurring testosterone levels, that's something that comes out of like 1950s psychology and psychiatry. That's just crazy stuff. Maybe they've got some ex-Nazi doctor working for them or something, but that's that's a level of thinking that that stuff goes back to. Honestly, I'm, I'm staggered that they would ever release a statement that said something as plainly against human rights as that is. Yeah, I find it mind blowing, and it's like, especially when you know that you have an issue where there are people taking not naturally produced <laughs> drugs to be better and to gain an unfair advantage. I think IAAF, you need to put more focus on that and making sure that you eradicate that rather than actually focusing on people who are it's naturally in their body and they can do nothing about it. Well, obviously, elite sports bad for your health, actually, too. I mean, the number of number of elite sports people that suddenly develop conditions like asthma is staggering. I'm not saying there aren't ath- asthmatics who get into the elite sporting world, but, gee, there's a lot of them that have never had asthma before but suddenly find a need to be taking asthma medication. Well, that's me. You know, I've, in the last few years, I've suddenly been diagnosed as an asthmatic and I'm taking medication, but I don't think I've ever been an elite athlete. I'd love to have been. Oh, yeah, same here. That's why we're doing this. Those that can do, <laughs> those that can't. We just talk about it. <laughs> That's it. Some people are on the pitch. They think it's all over. We get See ya. We'll be back next week.